Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the fall of 1918, a man in his mid-30s got sick. He was a relatively powerful man, an assistant secretary of the American Navy, and by the time he got sick, it was clear that his illness was part of an epidemic sweeping the globe, an epidemic that would kill upwards of 50 million people. And though that assistant secretary, whose name was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, did get better, and he actually went on to contract polio a few years later, the illness that sickened him in 1918 reshaped our world. It was the Spanish flu, which might not roll off your tongue when you think about the most important events of the 20th century, but it likely killed more people than the First and Second World Wars combined. So what happened was they would start out with the same symptoms of flu that you and I know in a normal flu season, if we're unlucky, sore throat, fever, headache. And then the unlucky minority would uh, start to have trouble breathing. They would turn blue in the face, blue would turn to black. And at that point, there was really no chance of recovery. And it depended on the individual, but it could take hours or days, um, but they would die. Laura Spinney is the author of the book Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. And she says, by the time the flu came along, the world had been at war for years and people were exhausted. A lot of people thought they were in a sort of Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, that that it was the end. They had invited this huge um, punishment from God. The Spanish flu, which, by the way, was not Spanish, it was called Spanish because Spain printed more information about the flu than many other countries, it killed at least 30 times more people than die in a regular flu season. It also altered the way we think about all sorts of things, from viruses to preparing for pandemics. So why is the Spanish flu something that society has consigned to the dustbin of history? Laura Spinney says... It may all come down to the power of narrative. I think that wars lend themselves much more easily to storytelling than Mm -hmm. pandemics. You know, there are villains and heroes, which there aren't really in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of beginning, uh, a middle and an end, Mm -hmm. whereas the Spanish flu just sort of struck. People were completely bewildered and then it had practically gone by the time they'd realized what had hit them. Mm -hmm. So, as you said, even though it was a much bigger disaster in terms of the number of victims, it kind of got lost in that easier story to tell. Mm -hmm. I wonder, too, if in some ways the Spanish flu, kind of like World War I with a lot more lethal warfare than we'd ever seen, was the story of like the modern world emerging. And, you know, I told that story about FDR, got the Spanish flu, recovered, but got it. And when he got it, I believe he was on a ship from France to New York, which just spoke to like This was a world in which global trading routes and military routes and stuff had had really permeated the world. We were a global society. And the downside of that was the flu hitched a ride on that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think we talk about the First World War as the, as the kind of failure of science um, because it caused death on an industrial scale. It gave us the weapons and the technology that allowed us to kill vast numbers of young men in an industrial way. But if you think about the flu, it was also a massive failure of science because science and medicine had nothing to offer to combat this disease. And, you know, it's kind of no coincidence that they happened at, at the same time. The experts uh, pretty much agree that the reason the Spanish flu was so bad was because it erupted in a world at war. Now, the, the pandemic itself would probably have happened anyway. But the thinking is that it was much, much, much worse because it emerged into a world where people were 
um, being displaced in large numbers, whether it be by troop movements or, you know, refugee mm -hmm. um, migrations, people uprooted from their homes. There was famine in large parts of the world. People were being deprived of their normal, um, you know, the infrastructure of normal daily life, which was upset in much of the world. And that included access to health care. So all of these factors fed in to make it a much worse disaster than it might have been, mm -hmm. we think. I mean, obviously, we have no other alternative reality to compare it to. Right. But we do have some telling numbers. The previous flu pandemic, which was the so-called Russian flu of the 1890s, killed an estimated one million people. We've had three flu pandemics since 1918, and none of them killed more than about uh, three million people each. Mm. So when you think that the Spanish flu killed between 50 and 100 million, it's a massive anomaly and it has to be explained somehow. Mm -hmm. And the thinking it is because of this synergy between war and flu. Mm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Laura Spinney. She's author of the book Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Do you think that the Spanish flu changed forever how people see science and medicine? I think it did. I think, uh, first of all, it was a deep shock to scientists themselves and to the medical community who realized that they had been complacent um, and their knowledge had not helped at all in this disaster. And you can essentially date the um, birth of the field of virology from 1918. I mean, people had been studying viruses before that, but they did not understand them at all. And they thought that almost all infectious disease was caused by bacteria. So this was a massive wake-up call for them. In terms of the general population, at the time, there was an interesting divide, really, because in the parts of the world that had not embraced germ theory, a lot of people turned towards science as if this is the cutting edge of knowledge. We need to embrace it in order to stop such disasters happening again. And they turned away from their old folk healers and their medicine men and their shamans. But in the industrial world, there was the completely opposite reaction because they'd had the medicine, they had the right. cutting edge medicine, right. and they'd seen it didn't work. So there was quite a big anti-science sort of backlash at that time. And one um, outcome of that that's quite interesting, I think, is that it's from the 1920s that alternative and complementary medicines began to gain a sort of new respect and a new following hmm. because people were sick of mainstream medicine and hmm. they were looking for alternatives. When we think back like 100 years, um, we're talking about a population of humans on the earth that was less than 2 billion people. And I just wonder if having potentially 100 million people die from the flu, if that like reshaped the demographics of the world. Yeah, I think it had a massive effect. So for a start, it purged, um, to use a kind of a biological term, the global population of a lot of sick people, including a lot of people with TB. Mm -hmm. So you saw a massive jump in life expectancy right after oh. the Spanish flu. You also saw a baby boom in the 1920s, which traditionally has been put down to the end of the war, the men coming back, and, and a wave of new conceptions. But you also see a baby boom in neutral countries. And one of the kind of new lines of thinking is that the population of survivors was just that much healthier. They are the ones mm. who survived, so by definition they were more robust. Mm -hmm. And they were now able to reproduce at a higher rate. So it's in a way kind of reassuring to think that biology has these mechanisms for correcting itself after mm. huge disasters. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's I'm talking there at the population level, and there had been right. a huge loss in terms of individuals. Right. But uh, humanity did recover, and quite quickly. Right. Let's look ahead. It's been 100 years 
since uh, the outbreak of the flu. And you talk about that as being, you know, the, the 1918 flu. Since the Black Death, since basically the 14th century, nothing had been as big a deal in terms of an epidemic. Do you think it's inevitable that we're going to have some similarly disastrous epidemic sometime down the line? I think it's absolutely inevitable that we have another flu pandemic. Uh, and I think, you know, there's likely to be pandemics of other diseases as well, not just flu, although flu is considered a particularly big risk. The size of that pandemic is a much more difficult question to answer because of what has changed since 1918. I mean, for a start, as you say, the population is much bigger. It's about roughly four times what it was in 1918. The population has aged and we know that the immune system weakens with age. Uh We're much better connected than we were then in terms of travel links. There are very few remote corners of the world that could be protected from such an infection. But we also have more weapons, you know, in terms of medicine. We have more in our medicine cabinet. Um, And so it's a difficult one to judge, but I I can give you one number. In 2013, the World Bank estimated that a new flu pandemic would kill in the region of 33 million people. When you, after you finished doing all this research about um, the, the Spanish flu of 1918, is there a way in which... Um, you know, you see the world differently or is there a story that you think about that kind of that sticks with you even now that, you know, you didn't know about before? So um, there are two things that I think are really interesting. I mean, there's many, but I'll pick two out. The first is about the children who were in their mother's wombs Hmm. in 1918. Hmm. Now, some of those didn't survive because, as I said, pregnant women were themselves very vulnerable to the disease. So they died in many cases with the Um, fetuses in their wombs but when those children were born they were diminished cognitively and physically for the rest of their lives you know they were less likely to graduate less likely to earn a a good wage more likely to go to prison things like that so the effects of what happened to them in the womb you know lasted for the whole of the 20th century that generation is only just passing now so I think that gives an indication of the need to prevent pandemics to the extent that we can because they have a very long-term effects And the other thing I wanted to say was about the social inequality which shapes pandemics. So, for example, in South Africa, whites blamed blacks for the disease. And in my book, I argue that it accelerated the process to apartheid, Hmm. which was put in place soon after. When President Thabo Mbeki a few years ago claimed that AIDS was not a viral disease and suggested that it be treated with beetroot and lemon juice and garlic, at first glance, what he was saying seems to be nonsense, doesn't make any sense. But if you look at it in the context of the long history of whites blaming blacks for disease in his country and the terrible price that blacks paid for that, for example, in terms of segregation, which wouldn't be repealed for another 60 years, you can perhaps begin to understand how, you know, the way that people perceive infectious diseases is affected by very long-term factors. So not only do pandemics have long-term effects into the future, but the way that they are managed and understood has its roots often deep in the past. And if we can understand those two things, then I think we'll get more aware of the need to prevent pandemics in general. Hmm. Laura Spinney is a journalist, a novelist, and she's the author of the book Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Laura, thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. Great questions. Though the world hasn't experienced an influenza epidemic as devastating as the Spanish flu in the past century, the flu does kill hundreds of thousands of people every year. 
and many think America could do a much better job combating it. We've got a link to articles looking at how we could do that. That's at our website, innovationhub.org.